Hello, welcome back to episode three of the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Joe Robinson, and I'm joined as ever by the man that Shirley Bassey famously wrote a song about. It's James Spender. How are Hello, you, James? Joe. Yeah, you good? I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm well. I'm enjoying, enjoying the sunshine that continues up until uh, this afternoon. Looks like it might cloud over a little bit, but we've had some glorious weather, haven't we? So... Again, lots of riding, and now you can also maybe even see one or two people every now and again too. So it's almost like life is coming back online. Yeah, what are we, week 10 of lockdown now when we're recording this, and um, we've had some unfa- unseasonably nice weather over the last week, which has been good for us cyclists. We've been able to get out and get some fresh air and clear the mind, but it does sort of, for me anyway, it feels like everything's kind of going into one, if you know what I mean, James. I, it feels like March and April flew by in a shot, and we're already in June now. And uh, you know, it's been a yeah. It's been a long week. There's been a lot happening, and we won't talk about it because we're a, a cycling magazine, uh, cycling podcast, and that's well above our station. But uh, it's been a, a been a weird week for me anyway. It's been a, lot of, I, a lot of comings and goings. Yeah, a lot of comings and goings. A lot going on around the world. Um, and sometimes, you know, you just need to switch off from it for your own mental health. And I did that by enjoying bike rides in the sun and watching Lilo and Stitch at the weekend, which to my mind is the most underrated Disney film of all time, uh, with arguably probably the best soundtrack and a lovely mixture of Polynesian, Hawaiian-inspired beats and Elvis. So if you haven't watched Lilo and Stitch, do watch it. Um, anyway, let's move on to the episode for today. So we're going to talk about, I don't know if you've heard of this American bloke called Lance Armstrong, but it turns out ESPN have made another documentary about him. It's four hours long. Me and James spent our weekends watching it so that you don't have to. Um, and we're going to talk about it. Uh, we're going to take use some hot takes. We're going to completely redefine the discussion on Lance. Um, no, of course we're not. We're just going to have a little chat about it. See if we really learned anything new about the whole Lance Armstrong saga. And we're also going to talk about a really nice jumper that Michele Ferrari wore in the documentary as well. Uh, Then we're also going to discuss riding in the post-COVID world. So life's changed a lot in the last eight weeks. And even for us cyclists, it's going to be completely different to what we've been used to this summer. And we want to offer you some tips of how to ride self-sufficiently going forward, as we think that that's probably going to be an important step for us cyclists. Um, but before that, we're going to start off with a new segment, aren't we, James? Yep, indeed. We are We're going to talk about what we've enjoyed using on our rides. So our best kit picks is how we're going to frame it. Um, do you want to go first, Joe? What is on, the best piece of kit that you've been using this week? Right, I'll be brief. So me and you, James, work in a cycling magazine, and we have the privilege of trying the great and the good of cycling clothing manufacturers, right? And we have yep. a ton of stuff come through our doors. Some of it's really good. Some of it's not so good. And it seems that every week there's a new brand launching that want to sell high-end road cycling kit. And what most of these brands do is that they have a fancy photo shoot in the Alps with someone in loads of, with loads of tattoos and nose piercings. And they dynamically market to us by sort of sending us the jersey baked into a loaf of bread. Um but then when we choose when we use the product it it turns out it's not that good but 
I've been using a product from a very small brand that are new on the block. Well, not they're not that new on the block, but they you know they might be relatively unknown. Called Albion, and yep. they are based in London. They're based within the M25. Products are made out in Italy, and I've been wearing their bib shorts. So they're only they're called the Albion bib shorts. They've got got a fancy name or anything, and I think they're absolutely top banana. And for two reasons, first reason is that they're a compression fit, right? So they're only they're constructed of two panels. They're a slim compression design. And on Bank Holiday Monday just went, I did my first 100 kilometer plus ride in quite some time. The legs were feeling a bit fatigued towards the end, but I felt that the fit of them really sort of held the legs together and gave them some support that you wouldn't normally get. And I think they were just sort of very comfortable for that. And I'm also a big fan of them because I'm a bit of a traditionalist and I would like all black bib shorts. I don't like anything really going on in them. And the design is, uh, you know, just plain black bib shorts with one white logo on the left leg and a high-vis sort of small strip on the rear as well. So they are very plain, go with all jerseys and sock combinations, which is a big tick for me. Um, And we're also going to say something we don't like, and it doesn't have to necessarily be cycling related, and mine's not this week. Um, I don't like the fact that multiple packs of cri- multi packs of crisps come in sixes, despite there being seven days of the week. So that's me this week. Uh, James, what do you that's like? A, Go that's on. A, that's a good point with the crisps. Um, I haven't really thought of that. Do you know it's why? Annoying, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Really, yeah, I get annoying. it. I get it because they have free every day. Yeah, so they have free. Sometimes they have free flavors, and obviously it makes sense to put two of each flavor in. I get that, but if it's a, a single flavored crisp selection if i'm buying them in my weekly shop i want to be able to have one pack of crisps a week i don't want to be constantly one behind which you would be with a six pack um but you know that's just a small bugbear of mine james i want to know what you you've been riding in and what you like at the moment uh well it's less what i've been riding in and what i've been riding on so uh both of these things i'm gonna i'm gonna choose two and that's a bit naughty both cool. of them are round. One of them is a wheel, and the other one is a tire. Okay. So I've been riding on some Carbon Aero Hunt uh, gravel wheels, which Hunt have uh, Hunt wheels have kindly supplied for the Bianchi um, gravel bike that I've been testing that I mentioned a few weeks ago, yeah. and that's really changed the ride quality of that bike. It is it's it's also shed seven hundred grams in the process, which is nice. not. You know, that's uh, nothing to be sniffed at. So the whole thing just feels quicker, lighter, livelier. And their wheels, you know, sub sub grand wheels, don't don't break the bank, you know, with the caveat of some wheels are £3,000. Um, and then on my road bike side of things, Vittoria Graphene tyres. I've said it loads of times, I think, in reviews. If you read the magazine, you're probably bored of me saying this, but they really are the best road tyre out there, I would say, for a clincher. So it's got an inner tube in it for a clincher tire. Tubeless is a different story, but they just change the ride quality of a bike. They make um, it feel like you're rolling almost on tubulars. And the reason people love tubulars is because of the kind of feedback you get and the smoothness that you get and this kind of connection, this lightness and connection to the road, particularly through corners, which stiffer clincher tires don't tend to deliver. So that's those are my two two picks. The Hunt nice. Carbon Arrows and uh, Vittoria Graphene Tyres. And is there anything that you don't like at the moment? Well, this is going to be a bike thing. Squeaky jockey wheels. 
not small, not small men that ride horses. No, no, not small men that ride horses. So squeaky. So you forget about this. Normally, okay, it rains. Your bike dries out. After a while, if you don't look after your drivetrain, then you get a squeaky jockey wheel. That's okay. But you just kind of forget, partly because it's just never warm enough in this country for long enough, it would seem, that you can also get squeaky jockey wheels because it's too hot. Uh, And I feel like, I don't really know the science behind this, but I reckon that grease gets thinner when it gets hot and dust gets in it. And it kind of just, I don't know, the whole thing just gets a bit gummy or a bit, a bit devoid of the thing that stops it squeaking, whatever that magical property is. But anyway, dryness also creates squeakiness as well as wetness. And that is my bike. Because it, it's just it's just always there. It's like this little mouse on the back of your bike going, wee, wee, wee. And you, Would, and you could just hear it. I, I think one of the most satisfying things in life is when you're cleaning your bike and you know the little uh, brushes that have a sharp bit of plastic on the other end is... Yeah is when you put that bit of plastic against the jockey wheel and you turn the uh, crank around and you slowly sort of skim off all of the grit that has built up on a jockey wheel. Oh, I love that. I know exactly How what you mean. How good is that? Oh, that's good. satisfying, isn't it? It's very satisfying. Do you know what's really annoying about that, though? Because it's almost like it giveth, giveth with one hand and taketh with the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can always get the bottom jockey wheel so well. Oh, but you can't get the top one. It's so hot because yeah. half of it's always closed up by the by the so um, outer face of the cage. You can only get the backside of it. Yeah, Ooh. and that's ha- the, that's the thing with tw- with squeaky jockey wheels, right? With the squeaky jocks, you can't get your oil in there very easily, or your, your lubricant because yeah. of just the way everything sits on a bike's really blooming hard. You have to realistically take them out, which is just next level, or just keep pumping WD forty onto it, um, ignoring any advice you've ever got from any shop mechanic. I mean, that's what I do. But I think the less on bike maintenance from me, the better. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as you know, first hand, James. All right, let's move on to section one, uh, part one of today's podcast, uh, Lance Armstrong. So over the last week, the topic of discussion that's been on everyone's lips, whether you love him or hate him, is the new Lance Armstrong documentary. So... American broadcasters, ESPN, have released their latest 30 for 30 documentary. And this time it was a two-part, four hours worth on Lance Armstrong, in which Lance Armstrong himself said he was not going to lie and he was going to tell the truth. Me and James have spent our weekends watching it so that you don't have to. You don't have to put yourself through that pain. And I think my first question, James, is what did we learn? Did we learn anything new? about the Armstrong saga? Ultimately, no. It is a story. (laughs) It's been been told a lot. It's even been dramatised in that film with Ben Foster that came out. Terrible film. Terrible film a couple of years ago. Um, Yeah, we know the the real minutiae of the details as well because so much of it was so well documented through videos that were released um, during depositions uh, with WADA, with USADA, yada, yada, yada. So, no, we we learnt nothing new, but I feel that we maybe saw it potentially in a different way. I don't know. Maybe that's being um, being a bit too kind to the documentary. Yeah, I personally, I I thought it weren't a great documentary. I'm going to go out there and say it. I've I've just watched uh, the Last Dance, right? 
which was the Chicago Bulls Michael Jordan what ten part series about his final season in nineteen ninety eight and the phenomenon that was the the Chicago Bulls in the nineties and that was incredible. There was unprecedented access. You felt that when they were talking to Jordan or Dennis Rodman, Scottie Pippen, they were telling the truth and they were telling it how it was. I got to the end of part two of the documentary yesterday that was on BT Sport and I don't I felt like I hadn't learned anything new. I I came away with it sort of thinking, oh I knew everything that's been spoken about in that last four hours. And if anything, it's just reaffirmed my opinions on certain people. Um, I mean, the, I think the biggest revelation that we heard from it was that Armstrong admits that he'd started doping at the age of 21. Yeah, that's new, right. That's new information. It's not surprising information. I think it was, I think everyone kind of expected that, you know, he'd been, as he called it, low-octane doping uh, from yeah. his first sort of years at Motorola. Um, but we didn't really learn anything else. Like he didn't give any sort of more information on the UCI's involvement during, throughout sort of his seven years of winning the Tour de France and Heim Verbrugge. And he didn't really. I just felt like it was just so. It's quite a vanilla documentary, right? So I got a good friend of mine who's who's what? Well, my, yeah, my housemate, right? Who's had to put up watching me watch it. Asked the same question as you. Did you learn anything new? And yeah, the answer is no. But then I found, found myself saying, but if this had been the only documentary made or if this had been made a couple of years ago, it would have been fantastic because it's so well, it's so detailed. If you don't know the details of Lance Armstrong's story, now I'm not saying that this is something you should necessarily pursue in the sense that you shouldn't really look over your shoulder at a car crash, but it does really have a, it's got immense breadth and I caveat that by saying it's also immensely long. It's three hours, three hours, 50 minutes, three hours, 40 minutes or something uh, told off in, in two parts. But I mean, what is it? I think what it taught me is if there was any, any shadow of a doubt that Armstrong might just somehow have been like this, you know, he might have just been unlucky and ended up being this unfortunate fall guy and there were other people like him and you know it was an even playing field in the sense that everyone was doping he was just better in the first place etc etc there's just one bit at the end of the documentary right 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 at the end where the documentary maker um says to him basically um can you live with yourself that's the direct question and he just says i can and it's just before it cuts. So if you watch it, it's just before it cuts. He does this little twitch with his eye that looked just like the eye movements he did when he went after Filippo Simeone, who was an Italian rider who had... Um, uh, what's the, he, he, he had testified, testified against Dr. Ferrari, didn't right. he? Yeah. yeah, testified against Ferrari. Dr. Ferrari is Armstrong's doctor. So Armstrong chases him down during stage 18 of uh, whatever it was, 2005 Tour de France, and just basically just gives him both barrels and says, don't you dare talk about me like this. Or don't you, you know, how dare you testify? I'm going to ruin you if you continue this kind of thing. And then the cameras catch up with Lance. Lance looks over, having just taken his hand off the back of Simeone, looks straight into the camera, and then does a little movement across his lips to say, you know, zip your lip. Yeah. He does a little look, and it's a look of a sociopath that knows he's got his own way once again. And you get that right at the end of that documentary when he says, I can, as if to say, ha. And once again, I am just 
telling you the story that I want you to have of me, the story that I want you to hear. I'm not. We both know this is not the truth, but it's the truth that I want you to have. And yeah. that's that's what I, that's my takeaway. Is the man has absolutely, um, yeah, he's he's not sorry. Basically, he just isn't sorry. One thing that I really took from it, for me, my biggest takeaway was that Lance clearly can't accept people that beat him. He hates being a loser, right? And he, even to this day, the people that have beaten him in his life, he can't forgive. So you'll notice throughout the documentary, he gets asked who, you know, at what point, what thing do you feel most bad about? And he says it was when he called uh, former Swanya, um Emma O'Reilly, I believe he called her a slut in one of his testimonies um, because she had basically been a whistleblower to David Walsh, the, the uh, Times journalist, right? And he said that he feels bad for that and that was one of the bad things that he, he feels most regretful in his career and he apologised for that. He apologised to Simeone as well um for what he did on that day in the tour and he was also very the most emotional we saw him in the entire documentary was when he was talking about Jan Ulrich who was for seven years Armstrong's biggest rival but he was the eternal second Jan Ulrich he never managed to beat Armstrong Mm. Um, and it was always Armstrong coming out on top against Ulrich but Armstrong could see remorse was upset, was sincere about these three people because these three people never beat Armstrong in his life. They were always second best. So he can go back and say sorry to them because they never won. Now, if you then compare that to his opinion of someone like Floyd Landis, who testified against Lance and was the main character in bringing him down in 2012 and also took out a lawsuit against Lance and successfully sued him for $5 million. He calls him a piece of shit and he says that he would never forgive Floyd. And I think that's because Floyd beat him. Yeah. He's opinion of Betsy and Frankie Andreu, who again, they both testified against Lance and they were two famously two of the, the sort of characters in this story that never took the the rubbish from him that others would have people like George Hincapie or Christian Vanderbilt and he can't accept that and he still holds them with some sort of disdain and some dislike and the third person is Greg and and that's because they beat him they beat him the the ultimate thing was that Lance fell down and and they won and it's the same with Greg LeMond the third one in the sort of to prove the point is that Greg LeMond beat Lance because LeMond's the American with the free Tour de France's now. Lance isn't the one with the, you know, Lance isn't the poster boy of America's cycling. Yeah, and right. Greg was outspoken about Lance and skeptical of Lance almost from day one uh, of when he started his streak of seven Tour de France's. And Armstrong, when the LeMond piece comes out in the documentary, is very, I mean, he doesn't really comment on it. And it kind of gets brushed over very quickly as if they don't want to talk about it. And I think that's, again, because he can't accept that LeMond beat him. He can't accept losing, right? And that's yeah. the that's like the one thing that I was like, he's just so, he's such a an alpha that he can't accept someone beating him. And that's what bites away at him. 
Yeah, and I think you're entirely right because, and that's the reason why he did this documentary is because I feel like he felt he'd been beaten publicly yeah. by all the lawsuits, all the lawsuits that went through. He eventually settled his 100. You know, his last one was um, two years ago with U.S. Postal, um, and he settled what was going to be a hundred million dollar lawsuit at five million. And even there's an interview, a part of the interview with him talking about that, and he goes, "Well, you know, I just." it cost me $5 million to get this month back because now I don't have to be down here. So in his head, he's still, he's joking about it. It's like he's trying to put a spin on having to pay $5 million as if to say, oh, well, you know, things could be worse, even though it's a lot of money. And I just feel like he's always, and people have said this about him, haven't they? He always wanted to control the narrative Mm. and the position that, these lawsuits and everything and the books that came out from Tyler Hamilton, The Secret Race and all the conjecture in the press. Yeah, excellent book. Where that left him was not necessarily in the best place. And also basically not with the last word. I just think he he will always come back for the last word. And you can argue that that's what made him a great cyclist or a great sports person. As you you say, you need that never-say-die sociopathic near attitude to be a champion or often that's seen in people that cannibalistic instinct yeah but it also means that even this bloke that's why he came back because he said he's watching carlos sastra on tv in 2008 win the tour de france but that was like he, that doesn't make that sense that was so funny it didn't well, make sense I mean, that... because like had he not fucking heard of alberto contador who then, like, <laughs> whoops, who then becomes his teammate mate and then whoops his ass at the next tour de france like makes him yeah. look like a, an amateur the, so just, the, so yeah, just, just to he, explain that. So like Armstrong in the documentary, he says, what was the thing that made you want to come back? So, so Armstrong retired in 2005 and he come, he started racing again in 2009. And he said, I was watching the tour 2008, Carlos Sastra won. And I just thought if that guy can win, he's not good enough to win. I can come back and win. I'm going to do it. And, you know, less little Lance's pulled up cotton socks. He was in insanely good shape because he'd been doing loads of Ironman stuff. But anyway, as you say, Joe, he then came back onto the Astana team, back with Johan Brunil, who was his old boss back at Postal. Uh, but he found himself uh, shacked up with Contador, <laughs> who was really rather good at the time. Yeah. He also may have been doing some really other you know, dodgy things. And then having to play second fiddle all the way to Paris, where he eventually got third spot on the podium, which ain't bad for a bloke that has just beaten 200 other guys to one of only three places in the hardest endurance event on the planet, having been retired. <laughs> you know, all of these things. And his, his face on that podium, Lance is so angry that he's helped Contador <laughs> It's brilliant. It's almost worth it for that. I love how dismissive he was, though. He was just like, Carl Sestron. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Alberto Contador is literally one of the greatest Grand Tour riders of all time. And at that point, he'd, you know... That he he ended up winning the second tour there, but he was completely dominant and one of the best natural climbers that we've seen in a very long time, maybe even since Michael Bantani. And you've also got Andy Schleck who'd come onto the scene in, uh, I think, was it 2008 or 2007 and came like podium at the tour in his early 20s and was just this other insane natural climber. And Lance just, it was as if they didn't exist to him. And I think that's yeah. even that's so indicative of his like mental, his, his like mindset, his mentality yeah. that there's like there is no one better than me. And so this, so this, I would say, is a reason. So far, I don't think we've been that positive about this documentary. I'd say that is a reason to watch it if you're a cycling fan. Is it does give you 
if not an unprecedented glimpse of Armstrong the man, then at least a very extended one where he is, as far as he's ever going to be, quite candid. So he gave his time to the documentary, I believe for free. I can't confirm that, but I've been trying to do some research to find out whether or not he has paid for it. And um, the uh, the woman who made it, Marina uh, Zenovich, did say in an interview that she asked the same question of herself and, and didn't have an answer because inferring that there was no other incentive other than he wanted to do it, basically. Um, so yeah, there are positive spins on it, which is, it's, it is an, an insightful piece on the character. And there's just these funny little kind of ticks that he has, like, there's a scene, did you notice he had his finger bandaged and later on you see why he had it bandaged? Yeah, he cuts his finger making a salad, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then he does this big song and dance in the kitchen about like, oh, I'm, I'm a bit scared of blood. <laughs> a bit scared of blood. Obviously, I'm not. I'm Lance Armstrong, Mr. Bloodbag King. Um, and, and feigns in front of his wife like, oh, we need to call one of our doctor friends, one of our doctor friends, like playing up to the camera like, number one, I'm a big hard man. Number two, I'm friends with doctors and I can just phone them. Um, and then just number three, pushing forward this, ultimately what becomes a joke that clearly just isn't funny to anyone in the room, but like a child that just has either such belief in themselves that they can't see past the end of their own nose or they suddenly become almost like embarrassed and he's like, shit, I've got to double down on this joke. No one's really getting it. I'm just, if I keep going long enough, maybe they'll find it funny. And he just suddenly looks really sheepish. And then there's another bit where he's banging on about, like, I'm still relevant. I'm still relevant. And you're like, you're 48 years old. And the last time I checked, before you did this documentary, people weren't really talking about you. So I feel like you're not relevant. You're trying to make yourself relevant. And then just to tie all these bits together, there's a fantastic scene where he's leaving a charity fundraiser. Yes, this is, and yes. He, and he goes, and it's a, it's a cancer charity fundraiser. Um and he's he leaves out the back, so he leaves via the dumpsters, and one of his entourage is just going like, "Dude, like, why are we going out the back door? I really don't think anyone cares." <laughs> <laughs> and and Lance just he's just looking at his phone. He just won't even acknowledge it, and it's just brilliant because he's been embarrassed. But, but then, in his head, he I can imagine he just still thinks like, "But I'm the guy. I am still the guy." So even then, like when he gets in the car, he doesn't put his seatbelt on. But yeah, he makes a point right. of telling him that he's not putting his seatbelt on so that he can cause an argument and be controversial and be like, well, you know, legally you don't need to wear your seatbelt in the back of the car. And he does it almost as if to like cause controversy yeah. so that he can then be like, actually, I think you'll find I'm right and I don't have to wear a seatbelt and I'm Lance, so why the fuck would I wear a seatbelt? And I, oh man, like, the yeah. man's crazy. The man is a psycho. <laughs> The man is a psycho. So actually, I mean, now we're really beginning to unpack it because maybe we did learn a little bit more because I never realized just how insanely popular at one point he was in the US. As they put it in the documentary, cycling never had a film star mm. like Lance Armstrong. So so there's that. But he trans he presented Saturday Night Live, which is huge. Um, uh, well, obviously on, on Saturday night, right? <laughs> um, big chat, Big chat show in America. So he presented that. He was consistently pictured hanging out and working out with Matthew McConaughey, who at the time, or well, still is, but, you know, big deal actor. Mm. And he was going to these parties uh, and he has this brilliant talking head bloke called Chad Mountain. Basically, <laughs> it just doesn't even say who he is. He's just called Chad Mountain. And you he just says Chad take Mountain. Take what you want, listener. 
Yeah, Chad Mountain, friend. So I looked him up and he's been in like some films and his full name is Thomas Chadbourne Mountain, <laughs> which is just great. But anyway, so he's he, he's an actor, uh, so he's around and he's saying Lance is finding himself going to these parties where people want to say hello to Matthew McGonaghy, but they all want to shake Lance Armstrong's hand. Like everybody loved this guy because, not well, not because of cycling, but because of... The um, rede- not re- the um, the story the, of hope, the the, the return, of, yes, the return yes. from the return from cancer, and that, that is one thing of the documentary yeah. is that you do get this feeling that there was, and he admits it that he did use cancer as a shield at sometimes to deflect questions about doping, but yeah. you do get this feeling. Uh, there's a journalist on there, Bonnie Ford. She agrees that. He he was at his most sincere when talking about cancer and about cancer survival. And they had testimonies of cancer survivors in the documentary that said that Lance Armstrong, Livestrong, and the work that he did transformed what it was like to have cancer in the US and that your chances of survival are much higher now. Um, and that was that would that for me seemed like the one bit of sincerity and the one mm. seemed, and one bit of like the documentary where you could probably not feel sorry for Lance, but understand actually he wasn't all bad. Yeah. I mean, and, and that is, if you really, if you want to try your absolute hardest to find something to be kind about, it is, it is, it's that obviously, but it's um, in this, so not like from his point of view, it's the fact that he really did seem to want to do good in this other world that he found himself in this. um, Yeah. This, this charity world, this inspirational world, looking after people or trying to guide people through um, the horrible thing like having cancer. Mm. And he realized that all of that was predicated on lies. So he had this almost impossible position. Nothing's ever impossible, mind you, where he felt like if he ever told the truth, then everything, the cancer, the Livestrong Foundation, the Lance Armstrong Foundation, that would all fall around his ears which it kind of ultimately did although live strong continues but it doesn't have the backing does it did you did you have the uh did you have the yellow wristband did you have one i didn't but they said in it didn't they how many they make five million they sold for a dollar each yeah i think that was they didn't they originally make five five million for a dollar each and then they end up selling 20 million in the first month or 80 million in the first month or something i had one i remember having one I feel like they invented that type of band. Yeah, 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 definitely. That was that was the first one. That was the most like the one that sticks out in my mind most. Mm. Um, but before we before we move on to the next segment and we bring it close to this, I just want to say two of the best things from the documentary for me, James. Were did you notice the Subaru Montgomery team kit? The, his first pro team. Oh yeah. Any transition? What a kit that was! All Listen, of his kits. Oh, the, yeah, I mean, the, the man lucked out on some really nice kits during his career, <laughs> yeah. except from, I, I weren't a massive fan of Radio Shack. They got worse, actually, because Astana was not great, and Radio Shack was a bit oh, Astana's awful. But um, Motorola's iconic. He, the Subaru Montgomery kit that he first became a pro in is, like, amazing, different levels. And, and also, there's they use a picture of uh, Michele Ferrari in the documentary twice, where he's in a... Uh, Ceramica Aristea? Is that how you pronounce the team? Uh, Who knows? The team Italian from the ni- team. Yeah, Italian team from the 1990s. And he is in this purple V-neck made by Fila. Oh, yeah. wow. What what a jumper. 
I just forgot about Fila being a brand, and Pantani is wearing some Fila in it as well, isn't he? He was sponsored. Yeah, Mercatoni, yeah. Maybe they need to make Fila. a comeback. They need to come back to cycling. Yeah, I, them I and Alessi. Them, Alessi, Adidas put out the yeah. call. They need to. They need to return, eh? Fun fact about fun fact about Lance actually. Before we go, in that early nineties period, did you know that he used to do training camps in the UK? I didn't know that. No. No. Where so did he, he do them? so he in in Sussex and Kent, right? So he was good personal friends with Sean Yates, who lived and grew up in uh, West Sussex, East Sussex. Sorry. Oh yeah. Uh, so when Lance was like twenty one, twenty two, when he was world champion actually in nineteen ninety four. Sean had him over to stay at his house for like a week to train around uh, the Ashdown Forest. Um, oh. And the sto- so the story goes, apparently they were riding around. Sean's at the end of his career by this point. Lance is at the beginning of his career. And apparently Lance is riding past all these massive houses that you get down there, pointing at them, going, I'm going to own a house that big when I'm older. Actually, no, I'm going to own a house that big when I'm older. Um, so yeah, like Lance used to hack around the Ashdown Forest and up uh, Kids Hill, the wall in um, <laughs> sunny South England in the early 90s. Well, little did I know I've cycled in the tyre tracks of a cheat. <laughs> oh, well, that's that's uh, sort of made my day in a strange way. Yeah. Um, I do just These are just random little things I might just throw at you and maybe we'll put them in and maybe we won't. But another one that popped up in the documentary, right? The fastest Tour de France ever was 2005, mm. which was one that was won by Lance. At 41.7 kilometers per hour average speed, which is insane. Over 3,592 kilometers. And you kind of think, oh, that's a serious distance. But then you think, you think to yourself, I wonder what the slowest Tour de France ever was. And you cast your mind way back to 1919. Exactly. Uh, Very, very far, long long ago. Uh, Over 100 years, in fact. And it was 24.1 kilometers per hour. And you think, gosh, that was slow. But then you think... I could have kept up with that. You could have kept up with that. What, for 5,560 kilometers? (laughs) I'll take that back. (laughs) It's just incredible. And I love the fact that one of the things they said in the documentary about how um, the UCI was going to look to tackle doping was to make the Tour de France shorter. (laughs) So it was a bit easier. So people wouldn't be forced to dope. It's like that's such a UCI thing to do. Oh, excellent. All right. Uh, should we move on to the next the next section, James? We should do. But just All between right. you and me, who would play Tyler Hamilton in a film? You're not going to guess. Owen Wilson. No, it could be. Could be Donald or Keith Sutherland. Yeah, he's got a bit of that. I think got a lot Donald's a bit old now. So times are changing, and as we enter this sort of post-COVID-19 world, and it's affected every facet of our life, riding our bikes this summer is probably going to be a little bit different to what it is previously. So getting water and food may be a little bit more difficult. Cafes are shut. If they are open, they're probably takeaway only, and corner shops and supermarkets have got long queues out the door and big rules around social distancing. There's no longer the fallback of being able to just jump on a train or get in a cab. We're going to be quite resistant to do that because of how the virus is transmitted. And also, we're going to just have to be more self-sufficient and expectant to be able to rely on ourselves and how we've prepared for these long rides. 
So what we've done with the Cyclist Magazine team is we've butted our heads together and pulled along upon our hundreds, almost hundreds of years of experience to bring together some of the best tips that we can think of preparing for long rides and how to remain self-sufficient. Now, James, we're going to start off with food. And I believe that you spoke to a cycling chef. Am I right? Um, I did, yeah. This week for a magazine article, I spoke to a chap called Alan Murchison, who is a Michelin-starred chef and also uh, a chef that looks after the British cycling team and some other World Tour pros doing uh, bespoke eating um, dietary programs. And I asked him, amongst other things, what he would reach for in a pinch to avoid the bonk. And this is what he told me. Uh, just about to bonk, you can't to a newsagent. You run inside, what are you grabbing for? Which chocolate bar, which drink? Mars bar. Mars bar and Lucas Egg would be what I'd have. Or full fat coke. <laughs> I, every single site that's worth of salt has been rescued by coke. Okay, so I would say, if I, if I was, was going to be walking in the newsagent, the two things I would buy would be a Mars bar and a tin of coke. That'll get you home. That's an hour's worth of fuel. So there you go. Unequivocal. Mars bar and a tin of coke. But, you know, there are other chocolate bars out there. But the point being, a Mars bar is incredibly energy dense. You know, 250 going on nearly 300 calories if you get a duo. Um, and a can of Coke is not only going to give you 27 grams of sugar, I think, these days. It's also going to give you some hydration and it's going to give you caffeine. Like Alan says, there's a reason why you see... Uh, these massive multi-million pound outfits handing their teams cans of Coke at the tops of climbs. It's It has saved every cyclist and it is a welcome treat on the bike as well. So I think that's, um, yeah, not a, not a bad shout, but obviously that does require you to be able to go into a shop. So the other thing is, is packing that food yourself in your jersey pocket. And it's just considering that when you're out riding, you're going to be going for a certain amount of time and you're going to need to replenish a certain number of calories in that time. I think and it's also I think it's also really important to that that shows that it doesn't you don't need to be fancy with how you feel on the bike. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That if it's all you need if if you can just make sure that you get to a petrol station or you get to a, a shop on a high street that might be open, all you do need to do is grab yourself a Mars bar and a can of coke, which are like two of the easiest things that you can buy and are readily available even in like the outer hebrides. And yeah, it means you precisely. don't you don't have to be looking around for sort of superfood or electrolyte drinks. You can literally just pick up two of the most commercially available edible and drinkable products in the entire world and you'll be able to get home with that. You will. And I'll tell you what, they will never taste sweeter. They'll never taste as good. That is so true. But, you know, that's food. And okay, that is a drink, but there's something gonna be more fundamental. Uh, than that that you're going to need to take on your ride so over to you joe what's the most fundamental yes. thing to take out on a ride water water the the one thing that nobody can live without it so traditionally we all use 500 milliliter water bottles on our bike mainly because it looks cool it's what the pros use and they're just the most sort of available bottles i guess when you buy buy a bike it, you normally get one with it but we're saying for this summer you should consider investing in a two 750 milliliter water bottles why well two 750 milliliter bottles fill them up put them in your bike it's the equivalent of having three 
500 milliliter water bottles on your bike, but just in the space of two, it means that you've got practically an extra bottle of water to keep you hydrated, especially on long days. You won't have to stop. You won't have to go and find a water supply. Um, and while, yes, a 750 milliliter water bottle might look a bit naff, you know what's naffer? Go on, tell me. What's naffer than that? Dehydration. That's true. Hydrate or die, as they say. Um, so, yeah, and, and that's something you see loads of people doing, isn't it? Just cruising around with one water bottle, and yeah. it's a 500 mil one. Absolutely fine. But you've got a plan for not being able to get water and uh, being thirsty on the bike. Just absolutely bank, bank, uh, Case in point, bank holiday Monday, James. I went out with two 500 milliliter water bottles. It was, what, 25 degrees. I got three and a half hours into a four and a half hour ride. I'd run out of water. And I couldn't find anywhere that was open for love nor money to fill up my yeah. water bottle because of the, the the situation we're in at the moment. And certain parts of Kent are actually still quite rural. I was unable to find water for about 45 minutes and I started to dehydrate on the bike. I started to get a little bit of cramp. Eventually, I managed to make it to a town where there was a supermarket, but I had to leave a very expensive bike outside a supermarket. Ooh. Exactly. To go buy a bottle of water, that probably wouldn't have been the case if I'd have taken two 750 milliliter bottles out with me that day. I wouldn't have had to do that and I wouldn't have dehydrated. So consider that going forward. Yeah. And a little interesting experiment you might want to throw out there because we've got the time. Weigh yourself before and after a ride and the difference in your weight is basically pretty much the water that you sweated out. One gram is about one milliliter. And yeah, you'll find it's amazing how much you sweat mm. and you do need to be topping that up. Of course. Um, next on the list. So water, food, very important. But it, none of this matters if you snap a rear derailleur or you double puncture on your bike 45 kilometers from home, does it, James? So how are you going to combat that? How are you going to combat that? Well, obviously, you've got to take spares. Yeah. And you've got to take tools. So they're two separate things. Now, every ride I go on, I pretty much take the same saddle bag. And these are rides, I'm talking maximum about 80k. So I feel safe and self-supported for an 80k ride with two tubes, two CO2 canisters, two tire levers, a tire boot. So that's cut from an old tire to go inside a tire if you get a slash, which would otherwise mean the inner tube pokes out. So they're pretty basic. But I also take a multi-tool and on that multi-tool, I'd make sure there was a chain tool. I have snapped a chain. Some people, you know, Stu Bowers, our um, editor-in-chief of Cyclist Off-Road, says he's never snapped a chain on a ride in his life. And that's probably the truth for most people. But I have. I can tell you it, it can happen. Our own um, editor, our own editor, Pete Muir, snapped a chain once, 70k oh, yeah? away from home, didn't he? And he had to, he tried to use a rock to <laughs> that's right yeah didn't he try and use a rock as the chain breaker and it just <laughs> yeah. went really wrong and then his wife had to drive 50 miles to come pick him up <laughs> to get Les to come and pick him up yeah i do remember him telling yeah i mean that's 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 the one isn't it that's when you're like oh and and check check your multi-tool have a look to see what's on it and make sure everything that your bike has is representative on the multi-tool if you see what i mean because yeah. one of the common things at the moment is having a through axle bike with no integrated lever, so it's just a six mil um, Allen key um, that undoes that through axle to be able to take out your wheel to be able to put in a new tube. 
And there are some multi-tools out there because six mil is an unpopular size for other parts of bikes that just don't have a six mil. So you might just need a multi-tool just to be able to change a tire these days. Um, and then a few little extra bits that I always make sure are in the saddlebag, although I've got spare tubes. Worst, worst, worst case scenario, I'm going to need more, but I can't really carry more than two or three. So patches, they're old school, yeah, but they absolutely work and they'll get you out of a bind and they will be that... It will save you from that really annoying day where you didn't properly check your tire and you pump up your brand new inner tube and you just hear it. Oh, as we've it all been there. The same, yeah, exactly. It hits the same thing that punctured the first one. So take those patches and also take a valve extender. Again, it's going to be sod's law. You've forgotten that you've either taken out that spare tube with a stubby valve or you're on that lovely road bike with your deep section wheels and your new tube. Um, the valve stem isn't long enough to poke through the rim and you can't pump it up. So take a valve extender. Um, I agree with all you said there, James, except from some of it that I don't agree with. So, <laughs> oh, Go on then. Go on so then, Mr. Me, Controversy. Mr. Controversy, I wouldn't take any CO2 canisters. I don't oh. like them. I don't think that they work. I think I'll have a lot of people sympathising me when you've gone to put the CO2 canister on the valve of your freshly changed inner tube after a puncture and all the CO2 is released from the valve, uh, from the canister, and it doesn't go into your tube. So then you have to use your hand, mini pump anyway. Um, I don't see the point in taking CO2 and the pump. I'd just take the pump, uh, and you, then you can, you know, you can get it up to a sufficient psi to get you home. Sure. Um, also, adding on from the fact that you're going to be taking extra spares, I would say, in this sort of mm -hmm. COVID post-covid yeah. world because you want to be a bit more self-sufficient you're going to Absolutely. be taking a, probably going to be taking a little bit more food from home some jam sandwiches you're going to have that oh, mars yeah. bar that you picked up from the corner shop oh yeah you Mad carry mars it bar and jam sandwiches on the way oh lovely you're going to be taking more with you so maybe look at investing in a bag for your bike so instead of just relying on your saddlebag and your pockets what about a handlebar bag so they're bigger than your saddlebag but they fit neatly in between your sort of hoods and within that you can fit in free tubes your tools your sandwiches a gilet a cuddly toy <laughs> and they don't get they don't doesn't really get in the way doesn't really affect the handling of the bike doesn't add much in terms of weight but it just means that things fit more comfortably in the bike yeah that's absolutely true um low so much more space you can take so many more things um i cycled down to uh my family in um in kent for christmas not recently and i was able to take a small little hip flask of whiskey so that yeah. was a lovely little thing that i couldn't have taken in my jersey pocket and ultimately saddlebags uh, sorry um handlebar bags a bit like undone gilets are de rigueur at the moment they really Ooh, make yeah. you look like a pro cyclist undo that gilet let it float behind you and put a big old saddlebag a I'm going to get it right. Put a big old handlebar bag on the front of your bike. On your titanium, and... on your titanium gravel bike that you've yes. done 300 kilometers on. Yes, but before all this, sit down and grow a moustache. Yeah, like I'm doing right now in lockdown, James. Cool, I can hear it. Bristling. Bristling in the wind. Hope the wind's not too, <laughs> hard, too harsh, otherwise it'll blow it off. Um, my last, and before, um, and my last big recommendation is within that handlebar bag, James. Yep always carry a 10 pound note and a two pound coin oh yeah so rob our art director told me 
many moons ago when I first started at the magazine, he always said to me, always make sure that you've got a pound coin in your saddlebag because if you do bonk or you find yourself in a bit of trouble, you should always be able to find a vending machine somewhere, whether it be in a car park or a train station, and you can get yourself a can of Coke. Now, I live in London, well, just outside London, which is a very expensive place, and a pound doesn't get you very far. So I've upgraded that now to a two-pound coin. Um, same with the ten-pound note. Ten-pound note can get you normally get you a good bit, a good amount of food from sort of a, a sort of a Sainsbury's local or a Tesco Metro. But also because we now have plastic money in the UK, it also doubles up as a tire boot, doesn't it, James? Yeah, no, it does. It's a, it does a fantastic job as a tire boot. Um, and if you don't have a, a tire boot, you don't have a ten pound note. Check a hedgerow. You can use a folded up crisp packet. You can use a gel packet. You can use anything that's basically just not got any stretch to it that you can that is quite thin. So that's another another party top political tip. flyer. Preferably something with I don't know a face of a Farage or a Bojo on it. Um, <laughs> someone that's equally just full of air. And before we go, we're going to give you some top tips from editor at large slash off road editor slash expert in all things bike, Stu Bowers, as read by James Bender. Yeah, so um, Stu is the oracle when it comes to these fixes, and I've heard of him do some pretty amazing roadside stuff. So in no uh, particular order, number one is always carry a zip tie. That zip tie uh, can do everything from maybe hold up a broken mech if your cable's busted to actually being used to fix a chain although you'll only be able to half turn those pedals because you won't be able to turn the chain all the way through across the sprockets because the zip tie is obviously going to get jammed. Um, and in a really strange turn of events, he also used it to fix a mate's shoe. So the carbon sole delaminated from the upper, he said, meaning that the shoe was still kind of partially clipped in, but the, his ride friend couldn't unclip it because didn't have uh, he couldn't twist it because the shoe had kind of detached. So Stu got the zip tie and just zip-tied the shoe back together over the toe so that uh, his mate was able to twist his foot to get it out of the, of the cleat, which is pretty clever. Um, and another one is, is look around your bike. There's other things that you've got that you can repurpose. So electric tape. Some uh, A lot of people riding uh, with tubeless setups or maybe even some dodgy rim tape. If you ever need to reseal some rim tape, you've got electric tape that is going to probably be present wrapping your handlebar tape on you can undo that if there's a group of you you know maybe not at the moment in the summer but uh this is another one from uh from the stew bowers archive a group of them got together and got enough electrical tape to be able to wrap several wraps around the tubeless wheel to reseal it and to reseat that tire after some rim tape had failed which i thought that was pretty i wouldn't um, even know where to start with that i wouldn't know to start and they're obviously you know they're they're, their bar tape is unfurling behind them and uh causing all kinds of havoc but yeah, what a great scene. But another classic fixes are if you really don't have a spare inner tube, you can stuff a tire with grass. It takes blooming ages, but it kind of does work just so you're not riding on the rim. You can also kind of get away with riding with a flat tubeless tire on, on a rim. I wouldn't recommend it per se, but if you know, needs must, um, it's a tight fit. It's probably not going to roll off. And if you can't get a wheel out, you can fix a tube with a patch without taking the wheel out of a frame. So you can just um, take unmount the tire with tire levers, pull the tube out so your wheel is still in place, pump it up, and then you can see where your hole is. Get your little bit of sandpaper out, sand the hole, 
whack your patch onto the sort of semi-inflated tube and then jobs are good and then you put it back in. You don't actually have to take the tube out. And, you know, the list of those sorts of fixes um, goes on and on. But I think it's just about kind of trying to think around the solution. And goodness knows, if you're sat at the side of the road like I was the other day and your seat clamp had bust because the little wedge bit had broken and you were riding with your knees up around your armpits and you suddenly realized that you had a tire boot and maybe, just maybe, with a bit of force, that could be wedged down in the seat post to secure it and you managed to ride 35k back from Kent to home, then you'll realise that there are no problems, just solutions you haven't found yet. Amazing. And on that positive note, we're going to bring an end to this episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Um, I just want to end the episode by saying thanks to everyone who's listened to episode one, one and two so far. Been pretty overwhelmed with the feedback uh, to everyone that subscribed, left a review, showered us with praise, not just our mums, but normal civilian faith as well. And even those who have offered some constructive criticism, you know, James and I are new to this podcast game. We're still finding our feet. We're trying to work out what works. If you've got something, an idea, an anecdote, a story you want to tell us about something we talked about in the podcast, or even just about Greg Wallace, let us know. It's cyclist <laughs> at dennis.co.uk or get in contact on Twitter at cyclist. Um, and yeah, that's everything. And we'll see you again in two weeks' time. I just like the idea that you see our mums as not being civilians.